1: Plus, producer Genevieve Kosky behind the boards. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we spent a lot of time padding around in the dark for a good pairing, which really heightened our senses of smell, touch, taste, and hearing. It was only then that we could truly see what was right in front of us all along. Two horror thrillers about blind people fending off a home invasion. I was so excited about this idea, Tasha, that I picked up my rotary telephone and gave you a call.
2: Yeah, and then you hung up after the second ring before I could pick up. Mm, sorry. So we just decided over email to do a show about Don't Breathe and Wait Until Dark. Don't Breathe is a hit horror movie from director Fidi Alvarez about three burglars who target a house in a ravaged Detroit neighborhood. They normally wait until the occupant is out before breaking into a place, but they've made an exception in this case for two reasons. One, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars in settlement cash up for grabs, and two, the occupant is blind. What they don't realize is that the blind guy is an ex-marine who's basically the best Marco Polo player this world has Ever seen. Don't Breathe naturally called to mind the 1967 Audrey Hepburn thriller Wait Until Dark, another movie about three crooks trying to steal from the blind. Don't Breathe is the rare home invasion thriller where our sympathies are with the invaders. But in Wait Until Dark, we're right with Hepburn's Susie Hendricks as she slowly deduces that the strangers in her home mean her harm and figures out how to gain some leverage over them. Wait Until Dark isn't a wall-to-wall fright fest, but the climax is a nail-biter, and it includes one of the most famous jump scares in movie history.
1: Yeah, the the key word here is vulnerability, which is why blindness is such an effective device in horror, even if it's only temporary, like Jodie Foster squaring off against a serial killer with night vision goggles at the end of the silence of the lambs wait until dark and don't breathe exploit their characters vulnerabilities very differently but both are excellent at making the audience squirm helplessly right along with them so let's start by smashing all the light bulbs here at riverside studio and feeling our way through wait until dark Gloria. she is blind and she is alone
0: the terrible suspicion growing
1: down the list and told me that the doll linked sam and mrs road and now mrs road's
0: dead murdered right next door
1: but maybe i was wrong
0: that doesn't matter if you thought that way the police will think that way
1: Tell Dark originated as a Broadway play by Frederick Knott in 1966, and Warner Brothers quickly snapped up the rights and turned a movie version around the next year. Director Terrence Young had made several early James Bond movies, like Dr. No, For Marshall With Love, and Thunderball, and he doesn't go to great lengths to disguise the fact that it's based on a play. 95% of the action takes place in a small garden apartment, where Susie Hendricks, a blind woman played by Audrey Hepburn, resides with her husband, Sam, who's frequently out of the house on business. In fact, Wait Until Dark feels a bit like a drawing room mystery, with Susie piecing together various clues to figure out she's in danger and then devising strategies to stay alive. Young does his version of a minor-scale Alfred Hitchcock movie. Wait Until Dark feels like Hitchcock's rope or dial-in for murder, which, incidentally, was written by Frederick Knott, and then it makes use of every inch of a very small space. We have a keen sense of where everything is in the room, The knife, the blinds, the safe, the phone, the crawlspace, and eventually, the heroin-stuffed doll these men are pursuing. Establishing spaces and important objects is the mundane business of great suspense filmmaking, and in this case, it aligns the audience with Susie even more. We feel like we could get around that apartment blind, too, and it becomes easier to believe that she can leverage her familiarity with it to her advantage. Audrey Hepburn lost the Best Actress Award that year to another Hepburn, Catherine, who won for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but her performance as Susie is one of her best. It's important to note that Susie hasn't been blind all her life. She's still not entirely comfortable with it, which Hepburn uses to add an element of tentativeness and uncertainty. She's the opposite of Stephen Lang in Don't Breathe, whose blindness is almost like a superpower, She has to overcome a serious disadvantage, both because she has trouble getting around and because Hepburn herself is so famously slight. That heightened vulnerability amps up the suspense, but it also gives us a great appreciation of her resilience and ingenuity in using her intelligence and remaining senses to her advantage. Then there's the climax. The title Wait Until Dark prepares you for it a little, but the shift from the cat-and-mouse game of the first two-thirds and the outright horror of the last third is startling. Once all the cards are on the table and everyone's motives are clear, Susie knocks out all the lights and it's game on. What's striking about the showdown between Susie and Rote, the bad guy played by Alan Arkin, is how sadistic and relentless Rote is. What a mortal threat he represents. He's almost like a slasher movie villain, in that even the certainty of death doesn't stop him from acting. At the same time, the scant lighting sources, like the matches or the inside of the refrigerator, are manipulated to increase or decrease Rote's advantage on a moment-by-moment basis. It takes a movie about a blind character to make us conscious of how well movies can toy with our emotions simply by controlling what we can see. We'll be right back to talk about that and more after this. Are you going to give me that doll, Susie?
0: I got it.
1: I don't believe you, Susie.
0: I can't. I don't have it anymore. What is that? Stop it. No, I'm not going to ask you again, Susie. So when you want to tell me where it is, you're going to have to tell me. I can't. It isn't here. You're lying again. Oh, what is that? It's just, it's just
1: my hand. (laughs) Tasha and Keith, uh, let's start with this question of genre. Wait Until Dark is considered a horror movie by some, but if you go into it with that expectation, you might be surprised by how long it takes to get anything approaching horror. How would you characterize this film in terms of genre, and how well uh, does the film handle that shift, Tasha Robinson?
2: I mean, I don't think this is horror at all. It's got some terrifying elements. If you want to be boring about it, uh, I would say that this is a thriller. Mm -hmm. If you want to be not boring about it, I would say we need to make up a new genre. For what this is, I mean specifically for me, this goes to a place of, I mean, what I would call stage to film adaptations. Like, there's a very specific type of film. I include things like Sleuth and uh, even like Bug or Augusto Sage County, as mm-hmm. these kind of bottle episode stories that take place in a very confined space and become entirely about claustrophobia. I mm-hmm. mean, they they make the transition from stage to screen, but they don't really make the effort that some filmmakers make. To open it up and take it out into the world, it Mm -hmm. really is all about like the contained aspects of like this tight little world and how people navigate in it. And it just it feels much more like that specific kind of story than it does to me like a horror story or a thriller story.
0: I can see why it kind of gets lumped in with horror because I mean we have Psycho in 1960, and that's a tradition that gets picked up by slasher films in the 70s and 80s, especially the 80s. Uh, but, you know, in its wake, there were things like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and like that that kind of defined what horror was for a few years there. And this is kind of in part of that. So, you know, in, in that sense, I, I do see why it's gotten lumped in with that. Now it looks like probably a bit more of a stretch than it did at the time. But even so, it is really the last Act that we're talking about that has anything in the way of traditional suspense or you know scares.
1: I think that, I almost think it gets amplified from thriller to horror because the quality of the scares are so good <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do kind of think of that the last third as having horror movie qualities. As I mentioned in in the keynote, Alan Arkin has the relentlessness of a slasher villain. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is he's on fire. You know, he's he's leaping at her. He's approaching her with something beyond you know mere criminality there's a there's it's it's malice uh, malice, exactly and um that's a little different Uh, and i think it's a significant shift from what we've experienced before in the movie which again as i said before is almost like the sort of drawing room mystery where she's kind of figuring out through various clues that these men are not helping her out or not or and, not who they say they are.
0: And the stakes become not just will the heroine have a happy ending but will her body be horribly harmed because we've seen establishes early on this very economical adaptation uh, of a play where everything that's set up pays off. But it's established very early on that, that uh, their associate they've killed was not killed gently and possibly even with some sort of sexual violence as well thanks to the torn clothing. So she's in a lot of danger and that, and that, that kind of makes, kind of veers into horror for me as well. We, we seem to be, you know, taking on a lot of these sort of 60s movies, like these liminal moment movies that aren't, aren't new Hollywood, aren't old Hollywood. But I mean, it's, there's a lot of nastiness in this that you wouldn't have seen I think even a couple of years later, like explicit references to Harry on, shown on screen, and the, the, and the potential for some really grisly violence—you know, even if it's not, you know, depicted explicitly.
2: Yeah, I mean, it does feel very much like a Hitchcockian film from that first shot. I got to say, I I had rewatched Wait Until Dark only a few months ago, and I seriously considered not rewatching it tonight because there's so many other things I should be watching right now. Mm -hmm. But I always kind of fight off that impulse. And literally from the first shot, I was really glad that I rewatched this immediately before because there's so much in it that, you know, just scene by scene that you forget. And that initial shot of a knife ripping open a doll's body... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. is so Hitchcockian. I mean it's it's suggestive and it's nasty and it it takes your mind to specific places and then you pull out to see the doll's body with its like blank dead eyes that is such a hitchcockian moment you know it just it sets up so many things in your mind so i mean in that sense it's horror in mm-hmm. the sense of like what horror was in the 60s it just it doesn't feel anything like what we consider horror to be today
0: and just a side note it just just occurred to me that audrey hepburn is a star of wait until dark and a star of charade which are like two of the greatest non Hitchcock Hitchcock movies
1: uh, ever made. Uh, why? Yeah. Why never any Hitchcock films proper? Hmm. That's, that's interesting. She could she discuss. Could have, she could have been in To Catch a Thief. Maybe she would have. She would have done well in something like that. Right? Yeah. He
2: really kind of. I mean, he liked his hair, heroines blonde, th- blonde and busty. Mm. Um, and I yeah. she honestly may have just been too like slight and willowy for the kind of thing that he liked to project in his films.
1: Yeah, probably, probably so. Um, But but, you know, also there was a thing where she stopped acting (laughs) after this movie for a long period of time, and and I wonder, I certainly had a much different impression of what Audrey Hepburn was even capable of doing after seeing this this movie. This is not how I think we're used to seeing Audrey Hepburn on screen. I mean, I I think we we see aspects of her as an actress that we just hadn't been exposed to before, and so maybe perhaps Hitchcock. If he had the opportunity, might have seized upon it after seeing a film like this, but she wasn't around.
2: Yeah, it's entirely possible that he just he didn't see her as that kind of character, and they you know they just had like a cross point where she was headed out.
1: But I, I do like this idea though that Keith and, and you brought up about it being framed as a horror film. I, did, I because I was of course thinking of. Uh, of the ending being as intense as as it is, but yeah, I mean that establishment of that type of violence, that level of violence with the, with the cutting open of the doll, and then and then the fate of uh, Lisa who's smuggling this doll. I think it's uh, makes a lot of sense to talk about it in terms of that. But maybe we're just splitting hairs here. But I, I do, I kind of want to get into a little bit the staging of, uh, of it because you did talk about it being a stage to film adaptation. It's not, it's not going to blow your mind. In terms of uh, cinematic style, but it's it's got got some of it. It's got, and I think you get a sense of space and where everything is in the room, and a, a lot of these mundane but important details that a director like Alfred Hitchcock would pay a lot of attention to. I so, mean, let
2: me be clear: I'm not knocking it at all for for being. No, no, stagy No, all. No, no, no. I small. just want
1: I just, I guess, I'm just looking to, to see what you all thought of the actual the filmmaking aspect of this. Was is did Terrence Young shoot his story as effectively as he could have?
0: Yeah, I mean, the last. I mean, just technically, the last sequence is. Pretty Pretty amazingly shot. But I think he makes really good use of the space. It doesn't really hide the fact that it could be a stage production, but it's not as if the claustrophobia works against what he's going for in this film either. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is a woman who is in many ways confined to this underground apartment to add an extra layer of, of claustrophobia and with no back door, so there's one way in and one way out, and she can't see anything. And I think it's all set up very well.
2: I mean, the fact that we're we established so well that we're kind of that we're underground. You know, it just it helps that sense of the walls closing in on her. And I think it's shot in a really interesting way when the uh, the two men first enter and explore the place like and the camera follows them around. You just you instantly get the idea of this place as much bigger and airier and more sprawling than you do at any other point in the film. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's just really interesting visually how Young goes out of his way to establish, you know, this this sunny, lovely, well decorated apartment that just starts to seem smaller and smaller as the action focuses in tighter and tighter on a single room yeah. uh, and, and doesn't ever leave it. I mean, it starts; it really starts to feel like a multi-camera sitcom eventually, just the fact that you're kind of focusing in from the one missing wall yeah. on action, kind of moving back and forth yeah. across a single room. Well,
1: I mean, or a stage. I mean, a sitcom or a stage, right? Yeah, fair uh, enough. Um, but the living room is certainly where much of the action winds up taking place. So how how do you feel like blindness as a condition how, how it figures into the, the film? What How is it used? What's its effect? What's its purpose?
2: I mean, there's so much like Hitchcockian, the, kid, the audience knows something that the character doesn't going on in this film, mm-hmm. like pretty much starting from Audrey Hepburn's entrance. You know, it, it's constantly being used to give you information that you have and she doesn't. And sometimes that's. Just used to build like, like very minor like petty personal tension uh, like when the little girl dumps all of her stuff on the floor and she doesn't know where any of it is. And you, you feel just so viscerally her helplessness in that moment of does she humiliate herself by crawling around on the floor groping for these spoons and pots and spatulas huh. to pick them up mm-hmm. or does she stand there and continue to yell at somebody she can't see? but then on the on the other hand you have all of these scenes where somebody's in the room and she doesn't know they're there or she knows that they're there but not where. I mean there's just there's endless tension to be mined from her helplessness and vulnerability in that situation. And the fact that we have all of this information that we can't give her just sets up that classic horror movie feeling where you want to yell at the screen, don't go over there, don't pick that up, don't do that.
0: Yeah. And, and it's all, as if to taunt there's all these all these scenes stage where the characters who can see are communicating with each other. In front, in front of her, it, it it really adds to the creepiness and the sense of the degree to which someone in her condition can be taken advantage of. As to the scenes where like one thing out of place completely throws her off. The bad guys have moved one small thing and she trips over it. It's just it's such a little thing. But, uh, you know, you it, it realize what, how little it takes to really put her in, in harm's way.
2: It also, the, I mean, the film plays a lot with blindness as a symbol of her bravery. I mean, from the beginning, it's established that she is a little awkward with her blindness, but mm-hmm. she's putting a brave face on it and she's like a little she would really like to withdraw more than her husband is letting her more than the world is letting her she would really kind of like to at times just kind of give up and curl up and stay in this space and and part of what makes this film so tense is that sense at the beginning that she just kind of wants to retreat to, to a place where she can be with her husband and where she knows where everything is and not only won't he let her but these invaders now won't let her they've like they've poisoned the one place where she felt safe
1: do you feel like that happens from the beginning because there is a certain trust, uh, tentative trust anyway, that that starts to build up between Susie and Mike, right?
2: I think it does start from the beginning because before we see her, they've invaded her space and Jack Weston just like walks in and starts eating her food just like beelines for the refrigerator pulls it out and by the way who keeps stacks of individual slices of bread on an uncovered plate in the refrigerator is that a thing
1: it was I guess that's how it was a different time
2: (laughs) you want to talk about dated there are all these like little touches of this movie that I I don't know that anybody thought about but that are very of the time and that I love one being the like I love watching uh, anything involving airline travel in the 60s Mm. like any movie where you see people just like smoking smoking thrown down a wad of cash and like picking up a ticket <laughs> she she gets like a three second glance in her bag from customs mm-hmm. they walk out to the tarmac to get on the plane i mean i know this is a complete diversion but in the same way the whole idea of like the ice box with just like a stack of bread sitting in it cracks me up but they they invade her space and touch everything mm-hmm. but like they've corrupted it before we even see her so yeah there's that element of invasion but it, doesn't, it doesn't
1: tip over into suspicion do you think do you oh think no not for okay. her
2: but certainly for us
1: no i mean we know that we know that they're of bad intent um but but i guess maybe that's the the line i'm trying to fi- figure out is whether she's uncomfortable from the beginning which is your assertion
2: with her blindness. I oh, mean, with her
1: blind Not with the, the presence of... Uh, no, no, okay. certainly not. Okay,
0: Not with the old Marine buddy, Mike.
2: Yeah, that, that whole thing is very nicely established, I think. He just, he pulls off a really good line in terms of why she should trust him. Although I, like, one of the things that I think is so... Much fun about this movie is we know from from the beginning what they want, and then the movie takes its good sweet time telling (laughs) us how they're planning to get it. Like that whole interaction with Mike, and then just like these escalating characters coming in and out the whole time. You're kind of going, "What what's their play?"
1: Yeah,
2: you know they could just muscle in there and put a knife to her throat and say, "Give us the doll." (laughs) But it is it is it's a a, a really elaborate.
1: It's a surprisingly elaborate scheme that they're Mm -hmm. that they're working on. That's true. there's a lot of symbols. There's a lot of like role play. You know, it's a lot. There's a lot going on. And meanwhile, you know, I think we're getting frustrated and want to know where this doll is as well. <laughs> Come on, Susie.
0: I think it helps also that what makes you think about that later and not at the time is that a, the dialogue is very good, and then the, and the acting is, is superb in this in this movie as well. I mean, I I love the relationship between Richard Crenna and Audrey Hepburn. You know, he seems like a trustworthy guy. He's Richard Crenna. He's handsome actor guy, you know, but but also, you know, instantly he's disarming. He he wins her over. And and it almost seems at times like he's making a connection with her and and, and starting to feel bad about what he what he has to do and like wishing this relationship was real in some way. It's a little I think I I find that character kind of poignant.
2: He also I mean, he his first act as a character is to rescue her. I mean, it's he's rescuing her from a very, very small thing, but she doesn't know that. She's She smells smoke. She knows there's a fire and she's terrified. I think one of the other ways this movie uses blindness is just to set her up to be vulnerable in very small ways. There's a fire in the ashtray and she doesn't know that it's not going to kill her. There is a small child throwing a temper tantrum and she is completely helpless. I mean, you set up over and over that she's weak against these tiny little threats. And then the question becomes, like, how is she going to deal with a much bigger threat?
0: By the way, Gloria is the worst. Oh, my God. We, she's terrible. we all agree that Gloria is the worst? <laughs> oh, the kid?
2: Yeah. I think the movie does some really plucky. interesting things with shifting our sympathies around on her. But, yeah, her introduction is just like, this kid, kid needs a good slap.
1: <laughs> she's a city kid. <laughs> Cut her some slack.
2: Uh, she's a city kid. She's a child of a broken home. And later we find out she's got you know, pluck and grit and yeah. all that good stuff. But
1: She's, she's, she's needed.
2: In that, in the beginning, oh my gosh, she's
1: needed. Well, you know, I, I, to go back to this idea of blindness and our, our perspective, our, our omniscience, and her being in the dark, obviously <laughs> on a lot of different things, is, is, is that you we do end up uh, appreciating all the more her ability to use the smallest cues and signals and you know bits of information to to figure out what the kind of a situation she's in. So it's very unusual. Uh, so things like the squeak of the shoe or the blinds or these uh, things that of course, you know, she has more of a acute sense of hearing, so she so uh, she can, she can put together things that uh, her adversaries can't, don't even think about.
0: That's uh, some good filmmaking too. That squeak of the shoe moment, because I mean, a lot of it's heparin's performance, but I was, I don't know how you would convey that on stage. I don't, I, we know exactly what's going on we can read her face and there's some really effective cutting between the shoe to her face, but I, yeah, that would be tough to pull off in the theater.
2: I mean, it's possible that it just in the theater isn't foreshadowed in the same way that it isn't handed to us. That's something that Don't Breathe actually does a lot, too, is like have the camera push in on little details to tell us that they're going to be significant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the other things between this and Don't Breathe, like when I was writing my Don't Breathe review, it occurred to me maybe something that I hadn't quite placed entirely previously. But horror movies really often require the characters to be stupid. Like to make escalating stupid decisions, or to split up, to run into the you know let's let's run away from the slasher by that we don't know where he is by running into this darkened basement, um, maybe one one at a time, that kind of thing. Both of these movies give you such respect for the central character's resourcefulness, mm-hmm. their ability to put together clues, their ability to to do what what they can uh, with improvised weapons, with improvised situations. Both of these films are about re- learning to respect and, and live in the skin of the, the protagonists.
1: And I would say, too, to that point, is that they both do a really good job of uh, narrowing the options I mean, as Keith was saying there's just one way out of this apartment so she really has to rely on just a few tools and strategies to to try to um, save herself and I think if, if it's in a bigger space or if she has more options or more things that she can do then maybe it's a different story.
0: They're also both filled with Chekhov's guns too. Mm-hmm. There's so much set up and paid off. I mentioned this before, but I mean, little things too. Like you know how to defrost the refrigerator, right? You know, you remember where the cord is. Like I that to me seen that seems like such a throwaway line, and it and it pays off so brilliantly at the at the end of this movie. Um, the the
1: refrigerator know. gets defrosted.
0: Yes and, the, no. yes, and the refrigerator gets defrosted. <laughs> the, I always remember the real suspense is whether or not the refrigerator will get defrosted.
2: Yeah, one of the things I appreciate more and more the more times I revisit Wait Until Dark is just how tight this script is in terms of, of setup and payoff, in terms of foreshadowing, in terms of characterization, like how well these characters are built sometimes in just a few lines.
1: Yeah, and that's something I kind of want to talk about too is the villains in this because that is something that sets the film apart because it it didn't have to um, make these distinctions between Mike and Rote. And I mean, these are very different types of criminals that are after her and represent different threats to her. And I think it makes the film a lot richer than just having one character we care about who's, who's fighting for her life. It's, it's got a a little more nuanced.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just by the end of that first scene with the three of them in the apartment before she shows up, you know, that wrote is kind of a a playful sadist. Uh, You know that Carlino is a glutton that who feels entitled to whatever he sees, but is also kind of a coward.
0: That's subtly set up the whole gluttony thing. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, And you know that Mike has some pretty hard bark on him, but is also like sympathetic, Mm -hmm. kind of sympathetic to women. Like his reaction to Lisa is the corpse of Lisa with her clothes partially pulled off is not, panic but i mean just the way he kind of goes grim about the the eyes and jaw and comes out and just you know tells carlino go look like <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite moments in the film is just when when Rode is backing them off at the beginning, and he grabs the tripod, throws it to Carlino, uh, and then picks up a camera and starts swinging around like a mace mm-hmm. on a strap. <laughs> like these are also resourceful people who have some like have some grit to them.
0: That's a good moment too. That there's no score. There's not a lot of cutting, but it, it really gets the tension in, in a way that I think something a little more frenetic wouldn't have. It's just like all of a sudden violence breaks out. Mm-hmm.
2: Or or just the, the threat of violence and mm. the question of how far people are going to go. I mean, again, looping back to ways in which this is a very 60s, quote unquote, dated film. I love the fact that there's no gun in this movie. Mm. There there doesn't need to be. I mean, the weapons are a switchblade knife and a camera being whirled around through the air. Sometimes a cane.
1: A knife knife is as well. A kitchen knife.
2: A kitchen knife. A straight razor, which uh, oh, now there's a Chekhov's gun that never comes back up again. That's true so but i I mean it's it's also small scale and intimate
1: yeah Mm, the intimacy of a knife (laughs) i like it so so i wanted to kind of get to the last third of the film on a couple of fronts uh because the, the last third is when we see the most of alan arkin who is our sadistic villain and it's also when the film filmmaking kind of changes as well so uh let's start with with arkin uh what did you think of his performance
0: I dug it. I thought I he was really fun and, and threatening, and, and I don't know, it's criminal beatnik type. <laughs> you know, it's a, <laughs> a, you know, it's pushing toward over the top, but I, I found that threatening. I, I like I like this performance.
2: Oh, I love his performance. I mean, he's such a weirdly conceived villain, you know, because he feels like a very slightly grown up version of like the the 50s and 60s thread of the street punk. You know, he's like he's he's a street punk from West Side Story who's like got a decade on him and has picked up some beatnik style somewhere. And he pretty much has an Anton Sugar haircut. (laughs) <laughs> like it, it isn't it isn't full down to the ears bowl, but it's like the shorter version of that. It's it's going to grow out into that look. I mean that and the little round uh, John Lennon glasses that are such strange affectations. Yeah, but, and so is the voice that he pulls. Like yeah. everything about him feels false and affected, and that's what makes it a lot more effective in the the final act when it kind of feels like he drops all of these affectations and pretensions and just kind of goes feral.
0: Did you know they wanted to kill me? I did. <laughs> I knew it even before they did. They were awful amateurs, and that's why you saw through them. I saw through you, too. No, not all the way, Susie. Even now, not all the way. The lovely thing was the way I let them set it all up. All that silliness of meeting in the parking lot, the whole thing. They had comic book minds, so we did it their way, right until the end. And then, Topsy-Turvy. Me, Topsy, and them, Turvy.
2: Where's Sam? Where did you send him?
0: Clever Susie. Where is he? He's on his way to Bellevue Hospital. There was a message waiting for him when he got to Asbury Park, one of those short, formal things. Your wife is at a slight accident, you know. So he took the first bus and is racing to your bedside. So we don't have too much time together. Uh your guy, you know, coming on a second city that to play a character who also plays characters as well. And, and, uh, yeah, the, those, that's when the scheme is at its, at its most Baroque, but I, I also really enjoyed, uh, his appearances as uh wrote junior and wrote senior.
2: Oh, especially Roach Junior. I forget about that. Junior feels like the Alan Arkin character that we've come to to think of Mm -hmm. as the Alan Arkin character. Like the this kind of like loose, soft spoken cadences that he uses when he's sort of fumblingly apologizing for his dad, who is himself. Like he sounds like I think of Alan Arkin sounding, and his voice as the other two characters doesn't. I love the fact that in order to uh, confuse a blind woman. He goes to the the trouble of putting on like wigs and like fake facial hair and changes <laughs> costume. The
0: people on the street.
2: I mean, it's all coming in and out of a van just across the street. Like how much he how has much... to
0: get. He has to get into character. It's a lot of kids you know.
2: He does have to get into character. <laughs> it flows
0: from the costume down.
2: And uh, he really seems to dig it, which see, it's like, I think is. I don't think it's a
1: missed opportunity that they didn't have his like. Fake mustache starting to come off and it not mattering at all. Like we <laughs> notice it coming off, but she doesn't see it. So what does it even matter? But um, you all you all are convincing me because because this performance kind of threw me off a little bit. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, it is it's a weird take on the, on a villain. I mean, and Arkin himself is not a terribly imposing figure physically. And it's just not – he doesn't suggest a huge amount of of menace. It's just he's disorienting and confusing and and not uh, unconventional uh, a a villain. But, I mean, now now I'm seeing – the way you all talk about it, it's, it's, it made me more of an asset than uh, I gave it credit for being when I saw it.
0: I think also you have to, f- to establish a lower level of criminality than, than Mike or Carlino because these are professional criminals they've been on for a while. They're not nice guys, but you don't get the, feeling, the sense that they're in the habit of hurting anyone. Whereas this yeah. guy, well, we already know he's gonna, he would hurt somebody because he, he, he has. But yeah, he, he seems, there seems to be no depth to which he won't sink unlike uh, the other two.
2: And he's again, he's just so playful about it. It confuses the issue even more of like, what, who is he with the mask off? I mean, Stephen King has talked a lot about how much he loves this film, and particularly the final scene. And I I just feel like this is a Stephen King character, like Mm -hmm. the whole, the artifice and artificiality that goes into him and like the weirdly gleeful playfulness that he pulls off. And then the fact that, as I say, he goes feral in the end, like that is a very Stephen King way to to build a character.
1: Let me, uh, as I don't remember the climax quite, that sharply is there a point at which he could have just gotten away because i mean she doesn't know what he looks like right so is there is there any point where he could have just taken the heroin packets out of that doll and just left without harming her yeah and so it's a decision that he makes that this is this is something he wants to do he wants to hurt her he a sure.
0: say this and also he's not someone who leaves any loose ends I
2: mean I feel like we're skirting the issue. He he plans to rape her.
0: Right, there's that too. Like okay. he
2: he's pretty specific about it and he's the, the dialogue
0: whole, isn't, but everything about it, the way it plays out, suggests that.
2: And that comes from a very strange place, because I'm not sure. I mean, the fact that like Lisa's clothing is disheveled mm. is maybe suggestive, and it's certainly shot in a way that's meant to kind of activate that that weirdest like sex and death combination aesthetic that horror films go to so often. Mm-hmm. But it's never really spelled out that he sexually assaulted her. It's never even really clear whether he killed her just like out of anger or whether he was specifically told to kill her. There's just, there's a lot that's fuzzy there. And then in the end, when he seems to just sort of suddenly go to, you know, OK, now I've got what I want. Now it's time to rape and murder you. He's just he's so casual about it. It seems like he was planning it all along. But there are very few clues leading up to that, except for that sense that he likes playing with people.
1: And what about the style, I guess, of that last third are certain suspense gambits. Again, maybe this is this is all baked into the play, presumably, but the fact that she knocks on all of the lights and that a lot of what we see visually is striking a match which is an incredibly suspenseful thing because of course the match it can only illuminate the space for so long and then it goes out and where's everybody going to be when the match comes on again and then the bit with the refrigerator door being sort of kept open you know these are simple things but they're very cinematic things and i almost think that could could they play as effectively on the stage i'm not sure but it's extraordinarily tense uh cinema i think
2: keith you were talking about a stage version of it
0: while well, researching this, I remembered that there was a uh, 90s stage revival with uh, Rissa Tomei in the Audrey Hipper role and Quentin Tarantino in the Alan Arkin role, which huh. I would love to have seen. I, it was not well received. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was not at the time. Well, he
1: wasn't well received. Was, surely she was good, right? Uh,
0: yeah. I, I don't think the production itself was all that well, okay. well received, but I, I, um, Tarantino was not all that well received. But I guess we have to give um, props here to, to Charles Lang, the cinematographer, who had a long and storied career. And um, even before we get to the point where these cinematography becomes very in your face i really love the tone of this film the technicolor the use of muted colors and, and the light coming into the apartment it's, it's really nicely shot film
2: and the pretty minimal music that just kind of like seeps in and out and cuts out entirely through. but what's there
0: is good uh, hmm? oh what's yeah there is great. it's great henry mancini yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'd like you kind of get that like upbeat, like Henry Mancini sort of mournful jazz at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then it just gets like more and more atonal and creepy as the film goes on.
0: And then the totally inappropriate theme song that just happens to share the title of the film, but otherwise is unrelated to it. To it. <laughs> what is up with that? <laughs> well, anyway, I think uh, it has
1: to. Do, I think it's pretty much related to the bread in the refrigerator. In terms of uh, '60s things to do, is to have the Wait Until Dark theme song. Mm-hmm. It's like raindrops keep falling on my head and. Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. right. When she's riding around on a bike and you get that song. Anyway. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, you just, you get the sense uh, towards the end. Like, I, I think it's a, a really daring move to go just full darkness and just like let your imagination do what it will. Mm-hmm. It's unusual. It's like, let's have a radio show that's got like a full minute of dead air in the middle of it and yeah. see if we can get people to follow along. But apparently they – like much like uh, Psycho, there were some fancy pants marketing stunts pulled around the, the idea that you
1: – oh, since right. you were
2: obviously going to smoke in the theater, because of course you would, <laughs> like you shouldn't light up during the last eight minutes of the
0: movie. Right. <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I, who could, you know, live that way? You know, you had to smoke during the last eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> who,
2: who could withstand such tension without a yeah. refreshing cigarette? Yeah, Exactly.
1: Yeah, and there was some there was some like unsourced business on the Wikipedia page about you know about them turning out the light in the theater at a certain juncture, and I don't even you know I've worked at many theaters, and I don't think you can't control individual lights in the theater quite like that. But I guess if you could, you'd maybe want to to do that to heighten the effect. But um, to me, you know, dark theater is fine.
2: Maybe the whole theater was uh, rigged by William Castle.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I guess some maybe we should uh, say some final words about Audrey Hepburn's performance because, you know, she did get nominated for Best Actress for this. It's
0: uh, She does a terrific job. Yeah, looking up uh, Roger Ebert's review of, of this film, he said he would prefer that she'd be nominated for uh, Two for the Road, which came out the same year. Mm. Mm. Right, which is, I, I love that movie so much. Maybe if I had to choose a performance uh, to nominate for an award, uh, especially for an actress who's about to disappear for, for a long stretch uh, of time, I might go with that one over this, but 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 she is really great in this movie and, and, and you know, technically it's such a, such a feat to be able to simulate blindness, because she's she doesn't have sunglasses on or anything like that. It's, it's staring blankly and not reacting. It's, it's quite an achievement. Yeah. I mean, she's, level.
2: she's fully committed to tripping over things, mm-hmm. which, I mean, it sounds like such a small thing, but like pretending that you can't see something that you're about to like physically fall over. I mean, that it takes a weird kind of physical commitment. And I would imagine that it's really difficult. But I, I mean, more than anything, I just got to give props to the way she projects dread in this movie. It actually took me back to The Wicker Man and Edward Woodward's performance uh, towards the end when he realizes what's about to happen. Just that that evocation of like immense and, and mindless, bottomless horror, like the way she puts that out there and then kind of reels it back to t- try to take control of the situation, I think is is one of the most evocative things in a really evocative movie
1: yeah I mean, I would say a couple of things about the performance so I mean, one you know not only she does she convey blindness but also she conveys someone who isn't comfortable being blind uh, 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 that is an extra layer i think to this performance. She just is not comfortable with she, her condition she's learning how to be blind she's learning how to be blind um which I think requires a a little bit more uh nuance uh from her performance. The other thing is just that is just the surprise of it. It's just the surprise of seeing Audrey Hepburn in a role like this, in a movie like this, You know, of having the, the, all the qualities that we associate with her, the brightness, the slightness be turned into a horror thriller. It works very effectively in a way that it, it wouldn't necessarily for... Somebody we that uh, we are unfamiliar with, or that we w- were familiar with in roles like these.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting because it, it, the brightness you mentioned—it's it, still kind of there in her personality. It's almost as if the Audrey Hepburn persona had just experienced a traumatic incident, and this I mean, was, she puts this up was, with was that was annoying left. kid, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I just when I think of her in Roman Holiday, which I think is her most famous role, I think of, or even to some degree, My Fair Lady, I think of that that kind of brightness and how it always feels like it's layered over a certain melancholy mm-hmm. and kind of a sense of, you know, having to do what you have to do to get by and being very aware of her place in the world and the, the trauma that she's dealing with and trying to put the best face on it. And I think that's something she just
1: projects really well. Okay. Uh, that's a good note to leave on. Uh, we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode i missed out on recording our last episode on the dark crystal and kubo and the two strings but our listeners certainly didn't miss out on hearing it we got a ton of feedback much of which you can find on the facebook page facebook.com slash next picture show but we wanted to share a few here keith do you want to get us started Sure. Our
0: friend Mike Vago, who made contributions to both The A.V. Club and The Dissolve, had this to say about the puppets in The Dark Crystal. One thing really struck me in your discussion of The Dark Crystal, and that was that Jen's lack of expressiveness was one of the film's big flaws. Having not seen the movie since I was a kid, I was surprised to hear that, as Henson's greatest contribution to puppeteering is the expressiveness of Kermit and the Muppets that followed. Before Kermit, all puppets were designed for a live audience and had to play to the back of the room, so they weren't really designed for subtlety and he usually had a durable, mostly immobile face. Even early TV puppets like Howdy Doody were based on this model. Henson understood from the very beginning of his career that his puppets would only be seen in close-up, so he made Kermit out of felt so he could have a range of expressions. So to see Henson backtrack on this for the main character in a film that was all about pushing the boundaries of what puppets could do on the screen is pretty shocking.
2: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that is a good point. I hadn't really thought about uh, just the degree to which, you know, Kermit's face is so malleable and Mm -hmm. and so capable of like taking on different expressions. But I mean, an awful lot of it. I mean, if you if you think about some of the more classic uh, like Sesame Street Muppets, like Big Bird or Oscar the Grouch or Cookie Monster. Hi, Cookie Monster. None of those characters, like, have particularly expressive faces. Mm. It's just that they bring across, like, the vocal talents and the physical talents of moving the puppets around. Like, what they're called upon to do gives them such character and but such But they have life.
0: soft faces that can kind of change with the, the puppeteer's manipulation of it. Whereas, yeah, the frozen faces, is a, it's a little different thing, I think.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm, no, I'm agreeing. I just, I'm thinking about... I don't know. I, I I find myself thinking about this a lot more than I did before Mike's letter, which is always a good thing.
1: Good job, Mike Vago. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so most of us really dug Kubo and the Two Strings. Tasha, maybe you somewhat less so. But reader Benjamin Sunday had a bone to pick. Tasha.
2: Yes. Uh, Benjamin writes... Looking back on Kubo and the Two Strings, one element that really bothered me was the role of Hanzo's magical sword and armor. In retrospect, these items are clearly just a MacGuffin designed to make Kubo imitate his father's prior journey, and in doing so, learn the rest of his family's story. It's therefore no surprise that the sword and armor are largely inconsequential to the final battle, overshadowed by Kubo's innate abilities and the power of storytelling. Still, I couldn't help wanting something more from objects that had been the main character's focus for most of the film. It may feel counterintuitive to argue that a MacGuffin wasn't given enough importance in a narrative, but it also feels wrong to invest items with the power to challenge the heavens and then devote so little attention to them in the end. Even if the intent was to subvert the audience's expectations by showing that true power lies in stories, not in magical armaments, shouldn't that have been demonstrated through a pivotal scene where the sword and armor fail Kubo and he's forced to rely on himself instead? Or should a MacGuffin simply be forgotten when the storyteller has no use for it anymore? Are the right and wrong ways to use a MacGuffin, or does devoting more than the minimum amount of thought to them mean missing the point of a story? I mean, <laughs> I guess my answer to that would be any story that focuses so much on the details and background and purpose of a MacGuffin is saying that you should pay attention to it. So, like, I I, I think that this is an entirely legit complaint here.
0: Yeah, actually, I would argue that it's wrong to have a MacGuffin do too much. So maybe that goes kind of against against the argument you're trying to make here. but. Uh, by definition, MacGuffin is just a device to move things along. And the fact that he has to gather these things together, yeah, sure, it keeps the plot moving, but maybe it doesn't matter that it's, it's not that big of a payoff with them.
1: But are there, just, there are emotional associations with these yeah. items, though, right? In Kubo and the Two Strings. I mean, again, it's been a couple months since I've seen it, but these are not just meaningless things. Uh, are they or are they?
2: I mean, I think the movie is is trying to make the point that he kind of has to – he has to assemble the history of his family. He has to understand who he is in order to effectively fight back. And it's sort of unfortunate that the way he is assembling his family history is by picking up these items that – We associate with specific things. You know, a sword is for fighting, is for stabbing or blocking. A helmet is for protecting yourself from an attack. His armor is for protecting himself from an attack. And all of those things specifically become like not part of the the final story. Like maybe if they were less martial items, if they were, you know, more personal items, this would make a little more sense. But, But they are personal well, they are personal. I think the problem is that we, I, I and I, I agree with this, but I think one of the things the letter is saying is that we don't, within the story, make a, a stated transition from, okay, I have these things, now I'm myself, and I don't necessarily need them for their obvious purpose, mm-hmm. you know, to, and here's what I'm going to do instead.
1: Well, let's do one more on Kubo. Uh, this is from Joshua, who argues for its merits as an emotional experience. I'm going to read this. Right? I can read. Yeah. Um. So, like, like Keith, I was really emotionally affected by Kubo's journey, and I was interested to hear why Tasha and Genevieve didn't make much of a connection. A lot of your discussion hinged on Kubo's lack of reaction to his mother's death and how he immediately moves on to his quest, and I wanted to mention why I found that to be convincing. I think it's important that Kubo's mother's mental state has been degrading for some time before the story begins. While she is lucid some nights, she is more often unresponsive and or confused, and we know this has alarmed and depressed Kubo. As someone who is currently witnessing the slow decline of my grandmother's mental faculties due to Alzheimer's, I really related to Kubo's reaction to a situation in which he loves his mother immensely, but, in some sense, has been mourning her loss for a long while before her actual death. The quest is just as much a relief from a long period of grief as it is a chore." That's the psychological case I would make for Kubo's reaction, but I think there's a strong story argument, too. Kubo didn't really lose his mother at that moment. She's standing right in front of him as Monkey, more lucid and physically able than she has been in years. We know from the undersea garden scene that Kubo has known that Monkey is his mother on a subconscious level for some time by that point. And I think the quick and relatively easy transference of his love from his mother to Monkey when she first appears works as a strong bit of foreshadowing for that beat.
0: That's really well stated, better than I put it, but uh, yeah, all that makes sense to me and... and I got the feeling it was a little more folkloric where where she was always coherent at night and never in the daytime, but even that I think that stands in nicely for dementia or alzheimer's as well
2: there were There are a bunch more letters um, that we posted on Facebook, like one arguing in in a similar vein and in even more detail for kind of the emotional and psychological underpinnings, and one talking very specifically about the the idea of a child taking care of an ailing parent um, being something really unusual in kids' films, mm-hmm. and I just have to say this is some of the best feedback we've ever gotten. People have really thought about this movie, and I love the fact that they're they're thinking about it in this depth and that they've made this kind of emotional connection. Yeah, to I it. can't
0: wait to see it again uh, after well, for because I loved it the first time around, but also, I'd like to bring some of these thoughts into a second viewing.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, but I would I would advise our listeners not to get cocky. <laughs> to, uh, <laughs>
2: you got to keep proving you yourselves, gotta, you guys.
1: Keep, right, every week you got to every uh, or every other week you got to really uh, knock them out. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at nextpictureshow dot net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll look at Don't Breathe, a horror thriller about three thieves who break into a blind guy's house to swipe a few hundred grand from him. Should be a piece of cake. You'll also get to hear this.
2: Nobody discovered the murder basement. Nobody investigated the (laughs) murder basement. Nobody found that corpse. Nobody found, I don't know, semen sprayed everywhere.
1: Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, take your stack of bread from the refrigerator and your stack of bologna from the refrigerator and your stack of mustard from the refrigerator and make yourself a sandwich.
2: When I can feel your nearness in the night My disappointment disappear The cheerless day may bring us little dreams that seem to miss their mark.